0: Well, uh, good morning, everybody. We, some of the staff, we were in uh, Nashville this week. We had a wonderful time down there. Never been in Nashville before. It's a great place. If you guys are going on vacation, uh, I am now a part of the uh, Nashville Chamber of Commerce, and I want to encourage you to visit our city. So, yeah, it was a great, it was a great uh, time down there. We enjoyed it. Uh, you know, in life... Uh, life has this uh, way of having ebbs and flows, and uh, by ebbs, I mean those sort of low times, those times where you stop and you go, is, uh, is anybody looking out for me? Uh, is anybody looking out for anybody? Uh, you know, is there anybody who's looking over this whole thing that's going on called the world, and uh, because things don't feel like anybody's really looking out for us. You ever get like that? You, those, those times when you feel really small, like your life feels overwhelming, you feel just confused. Uh, people of faith, uh, people who, with their real significant faith in Jesus can feel like that because the world's a big place, it's chaotic. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know that you guys uh, relate to that. You've, you've been at those times in your life where you look at the world and it just doesn't make sense. Maybe it made sense the day before, but all of a sudden you feel it, like this is, something's off, something's not right, and whatever sense of security you had the day before, whatever uh, perspective that you had, it's just like, it's gone, and sometimes you find yourself going back to asking big questions that people ask, like, wow, is there, you know, does this world have any purpose? You know, do I have any purpose? Uh, what's wrong with this world? And, and, you know, can anybody do anything about it? Because if, if you've banged your head up against the things that are wrong with the world and, and that are wrong in your life and wrong in the, the, the world you live in that you really inhabit over and over and over, you're going to ask these big questions. And when you do, when you ask those big questions, I want to tell you something. They're going to boil down to a basic question of who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? And, you know, the more uh, research is done on human beings, we learn all kinds of things about ourselves. But one of the things about who we are as people is we are hardwired to trust. We come in this world looking to trust, and it's not a flaw, it is what makes us fully human and the the problem is when you get in these times where these you know these ebbs and flows of life where you you know you run head on into the fact that that things are not the way they're supposed to be or at least it feels like that deep within you your your own human experiences tragedy injustice confusion loneliness alienation all these things just like, like waves when they break over you you can feel like Wow, can I trust anybody? And or whatever I was trusting isn't necessarily fulfilling the promises of the trust that I placed in it. And you start looking around. Well, I want to take you to a passage in one of the letters that that were written to the early churches. And it's it's there's a there's a church in a town called Colossae, and it was in Asia Minor. And if you open your Bibles to to the book of Colossians, Paul, who was a a leader in the early church, was writing to a church, one of the few churches that he wrote to, that he didn't plant, that he didn't establish and and pioneer it. But one of his uh, fellow workers had gone and planted this church. And he got word back that they were really struggling, that their trust in Jesus... And, and all the good things that had broken into their lives was sort of getting undermined. They were getting challenged to maybe, you know, maybe Jesus isn't all he was cracked up to be because they were starting to experience some difficulties and they were wondering, you know, it, why Jesus? Why Jesus? And so Paul writes them, and I want us to read this section together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and ch- under the chair in front of you there's paperback Bibles and we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1 and uh, if you have one of these Bibles with this cover it looks like this it's page 817 and I, if you wouldn't mind doing this with me this I want to read these two paragraphs together we're going to read from verse 15 to verse 23 of the first chapter so uh, There's something about reading things out loud that that gives you... You hear it in a different way than if it's just read to you. uh, Or you just read it on a page. So let's start at verse 15 together. and Read it out loud with me, okay? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible... to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, let's pray. Lord, these are beautiful words. Uh, They're powerful words, and... Uh, we believe that, that they convey who you are. And they, but more than that, that they carry life. That even as Jesus is, is called the word of God, that when your word comes, and when you speak your word, that life and power and goodness and love and everything that, that, that you have is released. And So we ask that this word would become your word to us today. We thank you for it. Thank you for this time together. Uh, we just ask that we could have ears to hear what, what your spirit is saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, he let me break it up into three parts, and then we'll break each of those parts. He, first, he talks about how Jesus is supreme over all creation. So, they're wondering, Is Jesus really have anything to say? Is he just like another run-of-the-mill deity? Is he another... Uh, you know, like angel, uh, spiritual being, is he another good teacher? Is he just somebody who has some good ideas? So what's happening is they're being tempted to put him into a category of all these other uh, philosophers and philosophies and systems, and Paul, right off the bat, just describes Jesus in this way that he's not... He doesn't want to leave them any confusion that you can't put Jesus among those, those other categories. He's in a category of, him, of, of his own. And he starts off and he says first, Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. So he, he, he talks about it in these terms of uh, in fact, through this passage, over and over and over, he says all things, everything, all things, everything. And what he says is that Jesus is the image of God. And that, that's a that's a Greek word that means to put something on display, to fully manifest it, for it to become real. So he's saying Jesus isn't just a, a special being that points you at God. He's God among us. He, he bears the very image of God. He is God. God in the flesh. And when he uses this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, in, in that century, and it's still practiced in the world today, there is a uh, social practice called primogeniture, where the firstborn, the firstborn male of a household, was considered the, the successor to the, the head of the household. And most of the inheritance, you know, of the, of the wealth of the family would be given to that one person, and, and what, they were, what they were considered was the preeminent person in the household under that father. And so everyone knew what the firstborn person was, but so when he's saying here, he's not saying that Jesus was a part of creation. He's going to clarify this a little more. He's, this whole passage is just going to hammer, Bam! Bam, bam, over and over. Jesus is supreme. He's supreme over this. He's supreme over this. He's supreme over this. There's nothing that he isn't over. And so when he's saying firstborn, you might have heard people who knock on your door who come in twos. You ever had anybody come to your door? There's a couple of brands of uh, this type of missionary activity going on out there. They knock on your door. And some of them are young guys whose first name is Elder. Elder. I always thought that I was curious. It's a weird thing. Uh, if you ever say that to them, don't. It's not very respectful. We did once, and it was, it was just kind of to twist of the knife a little bit, and they kind of looked at each other like, yeah, we haven't heard that one before. <laughs> but they teach that Jesus is part of creation. There's God, and there's Jesus, and he's a special part of creation. And that was, that was a, 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 a heresy that arose in the church. It's actually, it's a false teaching, but when it becomes a part of the church and it's taught by the church, then it becomes a heresy. There's all kinds of false ideas out there. They're not heresies until people who are real representatives of the church start teaching them, and then they become heresies. Well, Paul's saying, listen, Jesus is not just part of creation and, and a way to point you to God. He is the creator. And then he says, quickly, Jesus is the creator of all things. He made all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities, all things were made by him and for him. So if you ever get confused about Jesus' place in this whole thing, there's creation, every aspect of creation, and then there's God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus was the creator of all things, that all things were made by him and for him. Now, if you ever wonder if the universe has any purpose, what this is this is speaking to. This is one of those many verses that speaks to that question. Because it's popular in our society to think that everything that's here is eternal. It's just always been here that human beings we're essentially a accident that uh, we weren't here and then through an evolutionary, an unguided evolutionary process, we've appeared, we're on this earth, and at some point, something's going to take our place. And uh, our life is essentially, as, as many writers and thinkers have said over and over and over, if that's true, your life's meaningless. You have no purpose. You have no value. You have no significance. That's a very bleak thing. And so some people say, well, that's why people like us, people like me, cling on to these fables that give our life some significance or meaning. But the truth is, either your life does have meaning or it doesn't. And as, as one scientist I was reading recently said, he said, if things look like they have design, it's because they do. That When things look like they have the appearance of design, they do. You know, this phone is a, a phenomenally engineered creation. And life is... One cell of your body makes this look stupid. One human cell, one part of a human cell is engineered beyond anything that this is capable of. This, This can't make more of itself. Every cell in your body can make more of itself. That's an... That's an awesome thing to consider. And in a world that doesn't seem fair and just, it might l- lead you to conclude there isn't a purpose, there isn't significance, there isn't goodness. And Paul goes on to say, not only is, did Jesus make everything, but you know, his power shows, like, like his disciples sitting in the boat about to be swamped by a storm saw Jesus just stand up and say to the storm, be still, be quiet. And all the waves just go, the wind stops. You know, there's a light breeze and they're at their destination. And they all go, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And, And as soon as they landed, they encountered this demonized person who no one had been able to control. And Jesus just says a word to him, And he's clothed and in his right mind, and his life is totally turned around. And you just get these glimpses in this person Jesus that he's not like anybody else. And Paul goes on to say he's not only that all things were made by him and for him, but he sustains all things. He holds everything together. And it's this picture of God intimately involved in his creation through his Son Jesus, and. What it says is at the heart of the universe, at the heart of everything that's created is a person with infinite power and love and goodness and justice and wisdom and that everything that's made is purposeful and personal and that God is involved in this world in the most profound way. And uh, I think it was Elizabeth Barrett Browning who said, that, I could be misquoting her, uh, that that all the world is ablaze with God's presence and glory. But some people can't see it, and so they just sit around and pick berries. And she's just saying this this thing that at different points in your life you become aware of it. It's uh, everybody who follows Jesus at some point will probably have this experience, and if you pursue him wholeheartedly, consistently, you will have it more frequently. But it's sort of like you have this moment where a curtain is opened and God's reality and presence breaks into your life in this way that you just go, (gasps) it takes your breath. Sometimes you cry. Sometimes you're just, joy, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Uh, Peace, uh, this sense of being loved. I mean, the, the, the... the range of experiences that come when those curtain, the curtain opens and we have that moment is a picture of, of the fact that God is not far away from us. He's like right here. The problem is on our end. It's not on his end. But we can know him and know his imminence, how near he is to us through his son Jesus. And this is what Paul's saying. So he's saying, don't... Don't be confused about the world seeming impersonal and chaotic and unpredictable. God is in the middle of that. And he says that God's bringing order, that what you are sensing is that the world's not the way it's supposed to be, and that God is, through his son Jesus, is starting this process of reconciliation and bringing justice and order and harmony and peace into the world that we could never produce that we can try and try and try but we could never produce on our own but we can produce it we can contribute to it in the power of the name of Jesus in the power of the name of Jesus now i'm not saying people all over the world who don't who are working for justice that aren't using the power of the name of Jesus are not doing any good i'm just saying the power of the name of Jesus is the key to producing justice that endures, that lasts, that brings the kind of change that people are hunting for. And that's, a, that's something that you know Paul is talking to people who, mo- many of them were people who didn't have any power in the world that they lived in. They were, they were not just working class people, they weren't the merchants, they were, many of them were slaves. There were 20 something million slaves in the Roman Empire. Much of the whole Roman Empire was was populated by slaves. And they were very open to the gospel. And Paul proclaimed to them this freedom and this dignity and this hope. That's what he talked about at the very end, holding out for the hope of the gospel. But he goes from the beauty of what God's made to the next part. He starts, let's see, in verse 18. He says, uh, after he says he's before all things and in, all things, in him all things hold together, he says, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, he's going to repeat this twice. First, he's going to talk about, he talks about all things. He says, everything is messed up. And that Jesus' blood shed on the cross has this cosmic impact. Then he comes and he goes, and your life is messed up. And the blood of Jesus, Jesus has this impact on your life. And so we see this, and, and a lot of times Paul will re, has this order reversed. This is like, he's reversed his normal order here to say this. Which, by the way, if most of us don't read Greek. Uh, but when you read this passage, this passage, scholars noticed, is in the form of a hymn. It's in the form of a song. So, just like we, we, we sang a version of the Apostles' Creed today, they would sing these songs. People write songs about what captures their hearts. You ever notice that? What's going on inside them? What's preoccupying them? And this passage was a song. It was a hymn in the early church about Jesus. And so they would sing these phrases, and each of these phrases are just full of meaning and power. And at different points in your life, you can meditate on one of these passages, and it could, just so, it could speak to you in this profound way. In fact, not just inspire you, it can literally become this vehicle for you to experience that God's really like that, that through Jesus, He's like that. And so he uses these two words, you were alienated, and now you're reconciled. And that he's talking about, when he says that, that, that Jesus is the head of the church, His body, he, he starts off with this picture of a person and this sense of connection. Like all of us, our head and our body are connected. And there's this, this organic life and communication. And, and what he's saying is the church, all the people in the world who believe in Jesus, no matter how disqualified they are, no matter how far they seem to have been from God, or at times how far they seem from God, Those who believe in Jesus, God, who dwelt in Jesus, who chose to reveal Himself in this person, Jesus, has connected all those people to Himself in this profound way. That it's like they're His body. They're intimately connected to Him in this tenderness and relationship where where all the fullness that's in Jesus... So, So, think of Jesus... Then then he he shifts the metaphor and he says Jesus is like the head and we're his body and all the fullness of his uh, his glory is God the creator and God the sustainer and God the the first and the last and, and the healer and the savior and everything. That's all connected to us. Simply by our faith in Jesus. That God has connected you to himself and the fullness that that this, it's a Greek word that means uh, that which fills anything or fills something. That what God is filled with, His Godness begins to fill us. So we don't become God. We just begin to experience in a relationship who He is. All of His wisdom and goodness. Well, I think, let me back up. We don't experience all of us. It would fry us. But what we experience is is real you can't exhaust God but you can experience him over and over and over in a true way and that's what he's saying don't go after these empty substitutes they are, they're offering you something that they can't deliver so he talks about how Jesus is is, is amazing and, and glorious and then he goes into this alienation and reconciliation thing. Now, years ago, I, I, wa- I, I, I watched a lot of movies. Uh, and some of you, you you're, if you're young, you probably haven't seen this. This movie's older than some of you in this room. But in the early 90s, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, a director, uh, directed this movie called The Grand Canyon. I don't know, anybody see The Grand Canyon? Kevin Kline was in it, Dan Glover. Okay. The, the movie opens. Kevin Kline's this kind of you know uh, rich guy. He's coming back from a Lakers game. And if you know we're uh, in, in L.A. where the uh, Lakers arena is, it's, it's kind of a rough part of town. He gets out, uh, his car breaks down, and it's, he looks around. He thinks, this is not a good place for me to break down in my, my Beamer. And so he gets out, and he's trying to figure out what to do. Well, just almost like that, some, you know, some street-tough-looking guys walk over to him. and Oh, I'm sorry, he, he made a phone call, his uh, cell phone Makes a phone call. Uh, tow truck's on its way. And as the tow truck's pulling up, these guys walk up to him, and they start menacing him. And basically, they're saying, give us your car. He pulls out, one of the guys pulls out a gun. You know, At that point, they weren't turning it on its side like we do now. <laughs> <laughs> Just pointed it at him and said, uh, hey, we think it's time for you to uh, give us your car. And Kevin Klein's his character, he's kind of like, oh, my gosh, what do I do? Well, Danny Glover is pulling up. He sees this. The tow truck driver, he pulls up in front of the car. He thinks, okay, I know what to do. He's sharp. Sure. You know, he just ha- has his head screwed on straight. He backs his tow truck up, gets out of the tow truck, goes over, hooks the car up, you know, just acts like nothing's going on, <laughs> right? Just, just figures, I'm just going to do my job and hope that I can bring some, you know, uh, peace into this dangerous looking situation. So he's hooking the car up, and the guys, go, the guys walk over and say, What are you doing, man? This is our car. <laughs> And they have this little exchange. And in the exchange, uh, Danny Glover uh, makes some profound points. And one of the things he says in in the exchange, he says to the the young guy, says, listen, uh, this is my car. This is our area. You know, he broke down here. It used to be his car. It's my car now. And Danny Glover goes, listen, you know, I don't know you. You don't me. You could be the smartest guy in the world. I don't know. But he said, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you permission. This guy is supposed to be able to get his car fixed without asking you permission or without having you rob him and maybe kill him. And so I'm just asking you as a favor here. Would you please let me do my job? And the young guy with the gun says, Are you, are you asking me permission because I've got the gun? Or just because you respect me? And he goes, oh, you know, they, you know, I don't, you know. And, and he finally says, if you didn't have the gun, I wouldn't be asking you. And he says, that's what I thought. And he says, that's why I carry the gun. And, and there's a little profound point there if, if that, you know, if, that, if you didn't get it. Everybody in this scene realizes this is not the way things are supposed to be. Here's these young guys who are robbing or attempting to rob Kevin Klein, They, their life feels empty. Now, it, 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 it shouldn't justify them committing a crime, but they're saying, nobody respects me. Nobody cares about me. I don't matter. And so they take a gun. It's their way of trying to, to fix what's wrong. And this whole movie explores this whole idea of that, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I, I'm not sure it explores it. Uh, I don't, it doesn't give good answers from my perspective, but it explores it in this beautiful way, this, this really, really creative way. All the different characters are wrestling with these same things that these young black guys, are, and these, uh, the tow truck driver's struggling with and Kevin Klein's struggling with. Everybody's struggling with this. And they're going, things are not the way they're supposed to be. They feel what Paul, the word Paul uses here is alienation. And it means that two people or two parties are at enmity with one another. They're estranged. And it's not supposed to be that way, and they feel it. And that estrangement just creates all kinds of trouble. And so Paul is telling them, listen, you know what that feels like. You know when, like, the, you don't feel like you fit in the world that you're in. There's people that are in your life, and there's these moments where you don't fit with them. You can feel it in your own body sometimes where you go, I don't feel like I fit in this person. There's extreme examples of that, of people who are are struggling with gender issues and people who have deep psychological issues. Just internally, there's just this split and alienation inside us. And so you got alienation here, alienation here, alienation here, alienation here. And on top of that, there's this sense that we're alienated from God, which is at the core of all. That's what Paul says. So he goes, let me find it. Uh, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, as shown by your your corrupt behavior. So he's saying that at at the heart of all this alienation and this things-are-not-the-way-they're-supposed-to-be kind of world is we are at enmity with God. Because inside us, we've, we harbor attitudes and ideas and thoughts and motivations that make us opposed and hostile to God. He says that we're God's enemies. Now, does that mean we walk around going, I'm just trying to destroy everything that God's about? No. Because we're not, none of us, when we're at our worst, are as bad as we could be. There are people that we tend to think are the bad people in the world that are sometimes about as bad as a person can be. And most of us feel like those are the ones that God, that, that are in enmity with God. The Bible, what, what the Bible says, what Paul notes here is that's not, those people feel the estrangement. I felt the estrangement as a pretty, you know, middle class uh okay kid in Houston, Texas in 1973 going to college and beginning to wrestle with some of these things and beginning to realize and I didn't really think about God at that point but I knew, I felt inside me this estrangement. I couldn't have described it maybe as eloquently as certain people could but I felt it inside me and I wasn't a kid that was doing a a lot of wrong or a lot of harm to anybody but I was in the sense of what God had made me to be, I was far from it. Now, I wasn't as far from it as I could possibly be, but I was far from it. And it was inside me. The issue was in my heart. And what Paul says is, Jesus came along and he did this thing, and it's this long Greek word, and we translate the word to to reconcile, to make peace between two parties that were estranged. So what he's saying is that God wasn't estranged from us because He didn't love us. Jesus didn't make God love us. Jesus was an expression of God's love for us even when we were alienated from Him, when we were hostile to Him. Whether we would have called it hostility or not, It was we were living far below the life that God created each of us to live. And we felt that estrangement. And, and at times we felt it in an intense way and so just like God created everything and there was an order and a purpose to it he came into what he made what Paul says just briefly is he came into it as a human and he remedied this problem and what he did on the cross Paul says he listed several things he did he said you were in enmity with God And you were reconciled to God by the cross, which meant the word reconciliation means to change your relationship completely. That when we give our hearts to Jesus and we surrender our lives to him, we put our faith in him, that he does something in us that happens to us. It isn't something we do. When we receive something by faith, it changes us internally. Now, we have a more or less recognition of that. Some people experience less, not because it isn't real. They just haven't experienced the fullness of what has happened to them. They just begin to explore it. But what Jesus does is, it says, he makes us holy, without blemish, and without accusation, that he does something for us that changes us inside and in our standing with God, and opens the door for this relationship to begin to grow and develop that wasn't there before. Instead of being hostile to God and alienated from him, we put our trust in Jesus, all that changes. It's something that happens to us. Now, some of us have experienced that in a way that took our breath away, it, that that moved us profoundly. Others of us have been more subtle. But whether you had a dramatic sort of conversion story like the Apostle Paul or a quieter one like when you were eight or nine years old and you were at a, a youth camp and you prayed a prayer, you shed a tear or two, and then you know when you got home from camp you beat up your little brother and you go, ah, I must not be a Christian because I just did that. You know, Nothing happened to me. No. You experience what it meant to be born again. When you put your trust in Jesus, he does something in your life. It happens to you as a result of his grace. Then you begin to grow in that and explore it for the rest of your life. And what Paul says here is, and he he warns them just to wind up, he says, don't accept substitutes. At the end of this, he says, uh, by now, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusations. There it is. That when you believe in Jesus, right there, God made you holy. In other words, he took you and all the purposes you'd pursued for your life, and all the habits you'd formed, and, and the character that had developed, and all the ingrained stuff. In everything you had inherited, it says that he made you holy. And to be holy, that that word means to be set apart for a special purpose. That when you believed in Jesus, God said, because Jesus was set apart for a special purpose and you're putting your faith in him, now you are. Now you may have this sense of, well, I've been into all this stuff and I've got this momentum in my life and I've never been able to do anything to change the direction of my life in a meaningful way. How can I hope that this will be any different? Because right off the bat, he says, you're holy and you have a new calling and purpose in your life. The same purpose that Jesus had. And how he's, you've invited him into your life. He's going to live inside you and he's going to begin to walk you in this new path. If you'll walk with him, if you'll keep putting your trust in him, You will see this realized. And anybody that's ever done that has experienced that. And your feelings about that go up and down. They do. It's just like anything else in our life. Some of the happiest relationships we have can be, from one moment to another, the unhappiest. Right? And sometimes it can have nothing to do with what's going on. It can just be how we feel. He says we're holy. He says we're without blemish. And you think, oh, I don't feel without blemish. I feel like, gosh, there's some really messed up stuff in my life. But he says, no, you're forgiven of all that now. You're completely cleansed. You're washed. You're a new creation, a new person. And it's a, it happened to you when you believed in Jesus. It wasn't because of your effort. See? It didn't say that you reconciled yourself to God. It said Jesus, when he shed his blood on the cross, and you put your faith in him, boom, right there. That's when you were reconciled. It's a gift. It's given to you. And sometimes your conscience will tell you, no, no, you can't be forgiven that. We have these ideas that we have to challenge. And I don't want to get into very deep into that. I just want to tell you, your conscience is not perfect. Your conscience is far from perfect. It, it, is, it is an instrument within your life that needs to be calibrated and recalibrated throughout your life. It can be functioning well for a period of time, and then it can go south. And again, I don't have time to explore why that happens. But if Jesus is... What he, he says to them at the end is, "You need to understand, you've been made holy, without blot, without blemish, and without accusation. No one can even accuse you of anything." Now, that doesn't mean there there aren't people around us that can say you do this and this and this wrong. But what he's saying in respect to our standing with God, that we are forgiven and that we're under no more accusation. He writes in another letter. Paul writes in, in Galatians. I'm sorry, in uh, Romans eight, he says. If anyone's in Christ, there's no more condemnation. There's no more guilt that we have to carry around because Jesus already paid that price. And so he just urges them this. He says at the end, he goes, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. See, here's the thing. The substitutes come along when your life is going through those Inevitable moments of, is Jesus really the answer? Because things are not working the way I thought they would. Or, maybe things are not working the way they used to work for you. If you've spent very long following Jesus, there's been times in your life where it just seems like you could, you could fall out of bed and you fell into God's arms, His love. And then there's other times where you get out of bed and you run all over the world and it seems like God is as far away from you as, as is do. And when you're going through those times, then you go, is Jesus, is there something else I'm supposed to be doing? And is there some, is there some other thing that's better that will connect me to God that will give me a sense that someone's looking out for me? You know, that, that will give me a sense that the world works instead of the way it works now? And Paul just says, listen, at the center of everything is a person. The heart of everything is a person of love and intelligence and power and goodness and justice and wisdom that is incomparable to anyone or anything else. And he just urges them. He says, listen, continue in the faith that you've had in him. You'll experience this as you continue and he, and he has a, a sense of expectation in the grammar here that they're going to like he he doesn't seem to have in this a worry that they're not i'm not worried that you guys aren't but he reminds them nevertheless that these sort of attractive looking options are going to come along they're going to be presented to you and you need to say to him no Jesus made everything, and even though what he made got messed up, he came into what he made, and then he brought about the repair and redemption of what he made, of everything, things in heaven, things on the earth, and in our lives, and in human society, And that reconciliation started at the cross, and now it's working its way out into the world. It's the history of the advance of the gospel in the world should be an example to us that our lives are going to follow the same sort of pattern that we see the gospel advancing in the world. that, That same pattern. And you can see all over the world where the good news has been sown into communities. People like us go, we are going to live this out. We're going to believe it ourselves. We're going to let the implications of it change us, and we're going to begin to live it out in our communities. We're going to work for justice. We're going to work for peace. We're going to work for all the things that our society is missing because of the power of the name of Jesus that is on us, we're holy. We have this new calling. And you see this advance. But it, the gospel, it's like, let me, let me show it this way. It's, the gospel is planted in, a, in communities and it advances and then there's this pushback. And then it advances again. And then there's this pushback. And then it advances again. And then there's this pushback. Jesus said when he taught about the kingdom of God that comes through the gospel, through faith in him, he said it's like leaven that a a woman took and took a little leaven and worked it into this huge lump of flour, this huge amount of flour. And as, as that leaven was worked, a chemical reaction took place and then this whole lump of flour, this whole immense amount of flour was affected by that little bit of leaven. And he's saying that If you hold on to me, I seem insignificant, I seem foolish, the gospel seems like it's not popular, it's rubbing people the wrong way, but if you buy into me and the message about me and who I am and put your faith in me, everything starts changing, and sometimes you can't figure out how is this happening, how on earth are things changing? Because it just seems so foolish to trust in Jesus. They struggle with putting their trust in him and holding on to their trust in him because he was crucified by the Romans. It looked like a complete failure. That's why so many Jewish people didn't believe in him because they couldn't believe that God would set himself up to fail like that. That was a sign of rejection. But Paul over and over said, No. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The, the weakness of Jesus and the foolishness of Jesus is where we find his power. And the thing is, when we're, at, when we're at our lowest, when we're struggling the most, that's the moment where it seems God's so far away from us, right? But that's where God's Presence and power is most available in those moments that we don't want to go into. We don't want to find ourselves in those. And Paul says, when you're feeling like God's far away because it seems like your circumstances are so difficult, you've got to put on these gospel lenses and look at the circumstance and realize God is everywhere. He's right here. He's right here in my pain. He was in my He was in the world in pain and rejection and if we if we choose to continue in our faith when we're going through those very difficult dark times we suddenly realize the presence of God is all around me his grace is right here like when Paul said in one of his other letters he was struggling and he said God take this difficult time away from me I feel so weak and so helpless. And he said, no, my power is perfected in your weakness. And so trust, I talked about in the beginning, trust that we're hardwired for. When you're in those moments where you're really struggling, you get to decide who you're going to trust. Are you going to trust yourself and your own resources? Are you going to trust Jesus? Now, Jesus may work through all kinds of means, but ultimately you're looking to him and saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. You made everything. You are the only one that can fix everything. I'm going to hold on to you, and I'm not going to turn to myself or some other foolish option that is completely inferior to you, that can't hold a candle to you. And you have to encourage yourself with these kinds of words and and remember these kinds of uh, passages because when you're in those difficult times, that's where you feel like God must not be here. This must not be working. And the whole message of the gospel, the hope that's held out in the gospel is in the worst possible situation that human beings can imagine, God was in the middle of it. So are you in a situation right now that it may not be the worst situation you've ever been in your life. But you're in a situation where you go, I can't imagine God has anything to do with what's going on in my life right now. I want you to walk, I want you to just be gripped by this right now. God is here in the middle of it. He is in the middle of this. And he is here with me. He is the sustainer of everything. And everyone who looks to him. And you may think, but I'm looking to him. It's not changing anything. You just have, like he says, you have to continue. You have to continue. You have to just decide. You have to settle it in your mind over and over and over. You, you, this may be a hard thing for you to get past, but you're not going to grow in your faith in following Jesus if you don't come to these places over and over and over where you just go, I'm not giving up, Jesus. I'm not giving up. I'm going to hold on to you because he's holding on to you and you're saying, I'm going to hold on to you even if I, I only got a hold of you by one finger. I'm not letting go of that one finger. I got, that's all the strength I have is to hold on to you by one finger. I can't even get my arm around you. That's all that I have. But I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to look to you and I'm going to keep crying out to you and calling out to you until you meet me. And he will be there. He will be there. That's what the cross tells us. He said, God, God, why have you forsaken me? And then he commended his spirit into the Father's care, and he died. And then they put his body in a grave, and then he rose from that grave because he put his trust in the Father until he had no strength left to put his trust in the Father, and he died. And this is what happens is, as you hold on to God, you come to the end of yourself and you begin to enter into God's strength. You begin to enter into this strength, this resurrection strength in life that you don't have in yourself. But you don't ever enter into it until you're on the cross, so to speak, saying like Jesus, because you're his follower, where are you, God? But despite how I feel, I still trust my whole life into your hands no matter how bad this looks, no matter how messed up this seems, I still trust you, Father. And they mocked him when he did that. They said, oh, look, he's trusting God. Let God bring him down for the cross. Then we'll believe in him. Jesus, he just ignored all that. And he said, God, I trust you. I trust you. That's what faith is. And if you will put your faith in him, he will grow that kind of faith in you. You may think, I could never do that. I give up. You know, they just talk about the cross. And I'm like, there's no way. I'm running now. I couldn't even possibly endure that kind of pain. Yes, you can. If you put your trust in Jesus, you can become like him. But you will do it through painful experiences. They're inevitable. They're just inevitable. So anybody in the worship team still here? Is Adam back Adam had to run an errand. Well, why don't you guys stand with me? I'd love to sing that new song, a cappella, but I'm afraid to go off the rails here. You know, at the center of the universe is, is love and order and justice and wisdom, and it's personal. And I just believe the Lord, there's some of you here, that the Lord wants you to get a hold of that and experience that in your life. And you may not be in the throes of the worst possible situation you, you can experience in your life, but pain's pain, isn't it? Pain's pain. Life can be hard. And don't look at someone else's life that's way harder than yours and think yours doesn't matter. And that you shouldn't ask God to help you because you know, someone else is going through something far more difficult. Because Jesus cares about you right where you are. So just close your eyes for a moment. I just want to pray for you. I, I believe there's a, a blessing of God's presence and grace that he wants to put on you today. And, you know, if, if you feel that weakness, you're in touch with your own weakness. Maybe you're in some, some measure of pain. I just want you to hold your hands out. just as a sign to, to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to trust you in the middle of this challenging situation it may be a circumstance that you're in it may be something that's going on inside you internally just hold your hands out to him just as an expression that you're not going to accept the substitute that you're going to look to Jesus just like Jesus looked to the father you're going to look to him this morning and you're going to we I'm going to ask him to give you grace to keep your hands out to him until he meets you. I don't mean in this service, but as a posture in life. Father, I I just come to you on behalf of my friends here, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We're your body. You've made us your, your people. Father, that's your choice. You chose us. You wanted us. I pray right now, each person that's here could begin to experience the The truth of that, that you want them, you chose them, they matter to you, they're not an accident. They are created in your image and they have profound destiny awaiting them. And Father, as they hold their hands out this morning, I ask, through your Son Jesus Christ, that you would give them grace to look